Hi, welcome back to Litcentric Radio, the podcast that truly is a literacy coach in your pocket. I'm your host, Julie Webb. I'm so glad you've joined me again this week, and I want to give a shout out to a teacher who will remain anonymous for now because I don't have permission to share her name. Uh, But there was a teacher I uh, responded to on Facebook, actually just now, right before I started recording, and uh, she was posting to uh, one of the literacy groups that I like to follow, and uh, I like to see what questions teachers are asking and the advice that's being given and maybe the advice that isn't being given, and uh, I like to kind of put in my two cents when I think it's valuable, and this teacher asked a question about um, the center that she does called Write the Room, which for you primary teachers, most of you probably know what that is. And and for some of you, you may not. Uh, Maybe upper grade teachers haven't done that that center before. Um, It's pretty common in lower grades. Um, But in case if you don't know what Write the Room is, it's a center activity. It's an independent activity that a teacher might have students do um, maybe while she's pulling like guided reading groups. Um, And the students have um, generally some type of, you know, paper or form to fill out. They usually have maybe like a clipboard they walk around with. And they're supposed to walk around the classroom uh, writing down uh, the words that they see. And in this case, um, oftentimes I see teachers uh, using the activity where maybe they have a list of um, all the letters of the alphabet and they want the student to walk around the room and try to find a word for every letter of the alphabet and write that down. Or sometimes teachers want students to find sight words, or sometimes they just leave it wide open. And it's generally uh, used for the really young grades, like kindergarten, first grade, where we have emergent and early readers. And the teacher was asking a question about Write the Room. She said, well, you know, I always have this as a literacy station in my classroom, but I'm just wondering, is is it really something I should be having my kids doing? And she said, you know, does anybody know any research that supports this this activity? Or I'm wondering, is it even a good use of time? You know, what do you what do you guys think? Tell me your thoughts. And if I could give her a high five and a hug, I would right now. Um, it's not even really about write the room because I, I even responded to her. I said, I don't know of any research for or against the practice. Um, honestly, it's probably not that enticing of a subject for a researcher. I mean, I'm, I'm just finished my dissertation. I'll defend soon. And uh, I can tell you there's not much there to actually research about that practice. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there wasn't a whole lot out there on it. Um, but I, I, what I wanted to kind of congratulate her for and what I did congratulate her on was um, the fact that she's questioning her own practice. I just, I, I see time and time again when a teacher is struggling and it's not their default strategy. I mean, I think one of the most powerful things we can do is reflect. And those of you who are national board certified definitely know the power of deep reflection and how that can truly change your practice, change your outlook, and really lead to significant improvements in your own teaching and learning, which is always, you know, really exciting. And as teachers, we should be lifelong learners and we should be, um, you know, modeling that for not only our students, but also for the teachers we work with. And I'm just really impressed that she's questioning on practice. Whether or not right the room is a great idea, I don't know. Um, but really, that's up for her to decide. And I just told her that, you know, first of all, I think she is doing the right thing just by questioning it alone, because we can we should be questioning all of the things, all the activities that we have our students do. And I told her that, you know, anytime that I 
actually started questioning a practice that I was doing or my colleagues were doing, especially ones we've done for a long time or that old standby, oh, we've always done it. That's my first clue right there when I hear that, that there's not enough questioning going on because we should always be reflecting on, does this work anymore? Was it really you know, good enough to begin with? What are the alternatives, right? So um, I just told her anytime that I started questioning things in my own classroom and I kind of started down the path of taking that journey to find those alternatives, what was out there, um, it led to so many new discoveries for me. And I learned so much just from that process. So I really encouraged her to not even so much focus on the right or wrong behind it, or even worrying about the research that may or may not exist on it, but to just go on the journey to find some other things and to really watch what her students do with it monitor those outcomes, and she can decide for herself if it's a practice she wants to continue. So I encourage you, especially teachers who are doing literacy centers, there are an awful lot of literacy centers out there that really don't provide a lot of strong literacy practice opportunities for our students. They keep kids busy, but they're not necessarily improving the literacy outcomes for them. I can think of, for example, a literacy center where the students are coloring things in. There's probably a better way. You could probably change that literacy center where they're responding by reading, writing, listening, or speaking instead of by coloring. And now you've probably doubled the literacy practice opportunities for that center. So if we question ourselves and question the things we're doing, even small tweaks can make a big difference for our kids. And a couple of episodes ago, I talked about uh, Litcentric's uh, resource criteria that I designed and have a freebie available for you. That could be a great tool for you to use as you go on that journey of exploring what some of the alternatives might be and different practices that are out there and question not only your own, but to question the things that you see online, the things you see other teachers doing. Just because something's really popular does not mean it's a good idea for you and your students. So um, the Litcentric resource criteria just gives you some questions to help you think that through, think that process through a little bit. Um, and it could be helpful for you to make those determinations on your own for what's best for you and your kids. If you go on to litcentric.com and click on the store tab, you'll uh, that can take you to the online store and there's a freebies page in there and you'll find Litcentric resource criteria in there. And it's just a one page download. And um, if you are on the store, you can also see a sign up for the Lycentric uh, Insiders newsletter, which I send about once a week, sometimes a little more often. I'm usually just announcing you know, the latest episode of this show. Um, and oftentimes I'll have some freebies and some exclusives in there. A couple episodes ago, I gave away the freebie right there. So you didn't have to go anywhere to get it. You just click the link and there it is for you. So um, if you'd like to sign up for those, uh, those opportunities, that would be great. I'd love to hear from you. In today's episode of Litcentric Radio, we're going to take a look at the pattern of three. And we're going to use the text, The Perfect Nest by Catherine Friend. Doesn't she have a great name? Catherine Friend. I'd love for my last name to be Friend, Mrs. Friend. <laughs> it's probably like the happiest teacher name you could have. Anyways, I love The Perfect Nest. I found it many years ago at um, a book fair. I feel like I'm always saying I found a book many years ago. I just, I treasure these books so much that I've been hoarding them and, and I use them all the time when I'm working with teachers and modeling reading lessons and writing lessons and, and doing demonstration lessons with their kids. And I just, you know, I keep returning to the texts I love most because um, they usually offer more than one really rich learning opportunity. So I just find that, you know, I've got my old favorites. So this is one of them. 
The kids love this book so much for the different voices that the characters have. Now, the main character is a cat, and you can just read him kind of with your own voice, but there's different uh, characters that come along that have different accents. And so I suggest that you kind of practice a little bit on your own before you read it out loud, and it'll be kind of a fun surprise for the kids, and it makes them really engage. They just get a big kick out of it. And I like to use it for exploring the pattern of three that actually occurs so often in narrative texts. So if you think about especially the classics like um, like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, that's a good example. So first of all, there are three bears. Then um, Goldilocks come in and how many bowls of porridge are there? There are three, right? Too hot, too cold, and just right. Then she's got the three chairs. Then she's got the three beds. And then, you know, she goes through all those three activities and then the bears come home and they go through those same three activities and the pattern of three just kind of shows up over and over again. Think about the three little pigs or the three billy goat scruff. There's a reason that there's three. A group of three just kind of has a nice sort of roundness to it. Um, And I mean, just think about how narrative text works. There's a beginning, there's a middle and an end, right? There's kind of these three big phases to it. That's not super specific, um, but even so, that pattern of three shows up a lot. And you'll notice it um, even in other genres. Think about that five paragraph essay that we all had to write in school. We've got an introduction and conclusion, but didn't your teacher want three distinct kind of paragraphs with a different topic or a different focus in each one? That pattern of three is there. So it shows up a lot um, in different kind of in different ways in literature and nonfiction text. Authors often use the pattern of three to kind of provide that nice balance that we want in a story, but also you can use it to reinforce a particular concept or even to emphasize something or call attention to its importance. So you'll actually notice that um, if you're thinking of a pattern of three and you open some of your favorite children's books, you'll see that pattern pop up a lot. It's really interesting. Sometimes it's really prominently featured like it is in this book, and other times it's more subtle than that, but it's often there. So we're gonna take a look at the pattern of three in this wonderful book. Now, before we read, I've got an exclusive for all of you dedicated Litcentric Radio fans. For the remainder of season two, I'm going to give away a Litcentric Radio lesson each week. To win one, all you need to do is leave a rating and a review on iTunes or also called Apple Podcasts. Okay, so I'll announce a winner on the show each week starting next week all the way through episode 24. And that is the end of season two. So if you're interested in getting your hands on a free Litcentric Radio lesson, one that I've highlighted in the show, get writing your amazing review, click on those five stars, and listen for your name the following week. You could be a winner. Let's take a look at today's text, The Perfect Nest. Jack the cat gathered together everything he needed, then built the perfect nest, dry and cozy and just the right size. But the nest was not for Jack. With this perfect nest, he would attract a perfect chicken who would lay a perfect egg, which would make a perfect omelet for a cat like Jack. Soon enough, a chicken came along. Oh my gosh, the perfect nest. Isn't that the perfect book? It's so darling and it's hilarious too. The kids love it. And you know, it's again, it's one of those books that even older kids like it. It's There's nothing really babyish about it. 
And because of the different accents and all the dialogue and things that are, they're pretty, um, they're pretty short dialogue, pretty manageable. It could be a fun kind of um, almost like a shared read you could do with kids if you read it a couple of times with them and have them join in and try the different accents and practice some, some of their fluency skills. It could be kind of fun. So as we know, we are focused on the pattern of three and our bridge chart this week, we are looking at different examples from the text where the authors use a pattern of three and also what was the purpose behind using that pattern of three. So remember we talked about it's not just, um, you know, you don't just find it in narrative text. It's not just about text organization. There's different reasons. So I'm going to give you a few examples today. And if you're interested in seeing a picture of the uh, bridge chart and getting a lesson that goes along with it, you log on to letcentric.com in the shop tab. Click through there to the online store and you'll see a section just for Litcentric Radio. And you can get not only this lesson, but all the lessons from season one and season two, all access to all those in there. If you haven't checked out the lesson from episode one, our very first episode, it's in there for free. So I, I recommend that you download that and take a look. So anyway, with the perfect nest, I'm going to give you some of the examples that I would include on the bridge chart. I like to create four columns for this chart. Uh, the first column is labeled with the number, number one, then we've got number two and number three, and the last column is author's purpose. Now there are a lot of things listed here, and I didn't list even every possibility in the book because there are so many. Um, but some of the examples are, first of all, there are three birds right? There's the chicken, the duck, and the goose. So under the column number one, I would say chicken because that's the bird that showed up first, right? The second column would be the duck, and then the final um, the final bird was the goose. That would be in column three. And the author's purpose was to introduce us to the characters, right? That's the whole point of having those different characters on there. We also had different accents of those characters, right? And they said some different things. So the chicken had a Spanish accent and she says caramba all the time. And the duck has a French accent and says sacre bleu. And then uh, the uh, goose has a a southern accent like from United States and says great balls of fire. And um, along with some of the other characteristics um, and the things that the character said and did, it helps, uh, that pattern of three really emphasizes um, those personalities and how they're being expressed. And by doing that over and over again, and you can not only see um, and kind of predict what the character is going to say and how they're going to react, but then you can also compare that to the other characters and it just brings all of them to life in a really cool way. We've even got some predictable organization that happened in the in the book. If you remember when all the when all the birds get tricked by Jack to go find that other nest on a different farm, he's got three eggs there. And he says, um, small breakfast, medium lunch, and I think large dinner, right? So he's talking about the egg sizes there. So we've got breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We've got the sizes are a little bit different. That lends to kind of a predictable organizational pattern that makes sense to kids. And especially when you're teaching younger kids or you're teaching students maybe who don't have the strongest narrative skills, teaching them some of those predictable patterns that they can incorporate into their stories actually just gels their stories really, really well. And if they can use some of those predictable patterns to do some of these other things like introduce characters and express their personalities, you've really upped the ante for what you expect from them in their narrative writing and also 
um, you've given them some of the tools that they can employ those strategies and use them right away in ways that are not very difficult. Because if you know that, you know, you're going to introduce these three characters and you outline, you know, kind of who they're going to be and the, how they're going to act. You just plug them right in and your story kind of kind of move along in a really, uh, really positive way. So those are just some of the examples from the chart. Like I said, I, we've got a lot more on here. It's a really big chart. Um, this is one of those charts that you may want to spend maybe a couple of times uh, reading the book with them and building it as you go. Um, you may also have students um, you know, on their own sticky notes, write down some of the things that they see, have them help you stick it onto the chart. And then maybe at the very end, you know, after you've completed columns one, two, and three, you can go through and talk about author's purpose if you want to. Um, it's really important that we, we draw out the specifics that the author is doing here, as well as how the illustrator has to also recognize what the author is doing and reinforce that and play up those ideas in the illustrations. All these things are really purposeful. Um, they're purposeful moves made by authors and illustrators, and we want our students understanding that those decisions are made by real people with really conscious planning in mind for really specific outcomes. It's not up to chance, and for a lot of our kids, they feel like, especially when they go to write something, that it just feels all up in the air and they don't know which direction to go. So if we can show them some of the decisions the authors have made and understand why they made them, and the illustrators too, it can really help our students do a lot better job with their writing and take some of that anxiety away, give them a little bit of direction. So if you don't own The Perfect Nest, I hope you go out and get a copy. At Lecentric.com, in the Listen tab, we have information about Lecentric Radio there. You can click on Season 1 and listen to the show there, Season 2 as well. Um, and for each episode, with the episode description and, um, and the actual you know podcast episode there, there's also a link there for you to get the book. It'll take you to Amazon. The book's right there. Go ahead and purchase it, and it helps out the show a little bit. I'd love to hear how this lesson idea and this book um, kind of goes over with your students. Let me know on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I'm Litcentric everywhere you look. We will see you next time. Have a great day at school.